Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. Every other week this fall, we'll be airing a rebroadcast of some of my favorite episodes from our archives. This week, we're featuring two supernovas from the world of classical music, acclaimed soprano Renee Fleming and the reigning virtuoso of the violin, Itzhak Perlman. First, my interview with Itzhak Perlman from 2019. This is Itzhak Perlman's exquisite vibrato on Bach's first violin sonata. He was mature by the time he made this recording, 30 years into a career that started before his bar mitzvah. Perlman doesn't like the word prodigy, but it's hard to avoid. At three, he was practicing scales on a toy violin. At four, he was studying with a great master. At 13, he was whisked away from his native Israel to the United States to be on The Ed Sullivan Show. He won admission to Juilliard that same year. From prodigy to master, and finally national treasure, for 60 years his life was a blur of world tours and TV specials, playing for the Queen and given a place of honor on the program for Obama's inauguration. Yet, Itzhak Perlman had a difficult childhood, stricken by polio in the war-torn early days of Israeli statehood. Now he gives back at every opportunity, including through the Perlman Music Program. Founded by his wife, Toby, the summer school is located on idyllic Shelter Island, giving talented kids of every background the chance to study with the world's greatest musicians. You'll meet Toby and a couple of former students at the end of the program. You'll even hear the students play a virtuoso movement from Mendelssohn's Octet. The whole crew join me live on stage at the NYU Skirball Center in Greenwich Village. I always ask people who have a career similar to your career, if you understood... They, they have careers similar to my career? Well, not really. Actually, no. Really? There aren't many. There aren't many. But anybody, but anybody who was a young person, who, especially in this world you're in, where they, they cultivate them very young, and, and in sports, too, where they get these kids when they're 10 years old, and they kind of know that they're heading to the NBA or the NFL or whatever. But you're a very young child, uh, and I'm wondering, do you know what you're going through when you're a young child, or are you too busy doing it to well, understand what you're inside of when you're getting shot through this rocket to become this famous well, when I Well, look, when I was young, uh, my parents thought that I had a good ear because I could repeat everything, you know, by singing it. And then I said I want to play the violin, and I think they told me that I had a nice sound. 
So that was the, if you want to call it the unusual thing about the way I played, I had an, a nice sound. You were playing so, on what? Didn't you have like a toy violin? Or well, a I just started with a toy, which I didn't like, so I quit that. And then I was playing on something. I don't remember what it was. It wasn't anything spectacular. How old were you? I started really when I was like almost five, four, four and three quarters, almost do five years old. Do you know why? What made you do I that? I want it. I want it. I like the sound. I love the sound of the violin. I heard it on the radio. And I said, that's what I want to do. Simple. That's what I want to do. And, and there's no explanation. You know, everybody has a different thing that they hear and it sort of grabs their imagination. Yeah. And the violin sound was that. And I think it was Heifetz. So he was pretty good for grabbing the imagination, you know. At what age do you start to get a little tougher with them when they're how old? Well, look, everybody has their own uh, sort of schedule of development. You know, sometimes you hear somebody at the age of 12 who just sound basic, not very, very good. But you hear something there. And so you have to know what to say and what not to say. I, I'd like to just insert that. You know, what's the uh, great secret of a good teacher is not only knowing what to say, but knowing what not to say. And especially what not to say when somebody that has great gift and great musical musical naturalness. And those that have that great gift and that natural You leave ability, them alone. You do. You leave them alone. You don't want to hurt their feelings. Uh, no, no, you don't want to hurt them. <laughs> no, it's not their feelings. It's you don't want to futz around. You know, you don't want to, you know, just let the natural uh, ability, the natural talent develop. And usually things get better as you grow older, you know, without having to really nitpick with everything. And that's, that's I find, is, is, is a danger. Because, you know, when a teacher has such incredible talent in front of them, you know, they, they want to give you their all. So then they become too picky. Leave it alone. Just leave it alone. During what years did you study with Goldgart? I studied with her from the age of five until I was 13. You studied with her for eight years? Eight years. And then you came to the United States right. to do Sullivan when you yep. were 13 years old. Yes. Now, when you came to do Sullivan, I find that unbelievable. When you came to do Sullivan and you're 13 years old, yes. did you have any idea who Sullivan was? This was your first Absolutely trip to the U.S.? Absolutely not. I had no you idea. There was some no weird idea. guy with like you shoe know, polish came, in his hair. Exactly. No, no. I, yeah. I, I didn't know how he, how he looked or anything. I just, I, I, I just in Israel, they talked about because when we came to, to Israel to audition a whole bunch of people uh, to go on his show, they said uh, there they didn't call him Sullivan. They called him Sullivan. Sullivan. Ed Sullivan. Who is Ed Sullivan? Ed Sullivan. Oh, television. Oh, my. Oh, I said, okay, television. I said, the minute I heard television, I said, I'm in. So I, so I auditioned, you know, and then I was chosen. You know, there was, there they was, sent people over to audition musicians yes. in Israel for oh, Sullivan? Yes, because for Sullivan? He, he wanted, Ed Sullivan wanted a show only of the Israeli, uh, uh, pardon my accent, only of the Israeli people. So it was a variety. He was a great Jew, Ed Sullivan, was, wasn't yes. he? <laughs> Going back to the homeland, bringing yeah, the kids there, over. Well, there some people thought his name was Ed Solomon, but, but we Ed changed Sol it to Ed Sullivan. <laughs> it might have been. But, but, you know, so the whole show was an Israeli variety show. You've seen his show, you know, he had everybody. He had a monkey dancing and then he had yeah. somebody playing the violin and so on. In this particular case, it was a pair of um, uh, folk singers and there was... Topo Gigio. Uh, no, there were, we didn't have Topo and no, we didn't Topo have Gigio. Okay. We didn't have them. But we had a ballet dancer who was 14. We had a coloratura soprano from Yemen. I think I was in the department of... Uh, human interest story or chubby story. I don't know what I was, what I was, but I was cute, I think, sort you of. You were very cute. I was cute. Thank you, you so very, much. Oh my Thank God, you. you were so cute. I've Thank seen you. the footage. I know. And I was so cute. So when you so come cute. over, you'd never been to the U.S. before. No. Your mother comes with you. Yes. And you perform on Sullivan. Yes. Do you remember what that was like doing the show? It was uh, slightly exciting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. No, it was it was very exciting, you know. And so I, I kind of played, and it was very it was over very quickly, you know, because I did the last movement of the Mendelssohn Concerto, uh, and they cut it down to about I think two two minutes and forty five seconds because that was it. And uh, and he introduced me. He was a lovely gentleman, really very very nice. And then what happened after you did Sullivan? Uh, I we went on a tour. Uh, in the U.S. In the U.S., oh, the entire group that did Sullivan, we went on a, on a tour. 
For how uh, long? Months? For, yeah, about three, three or four months. Around you know? the country? Yeah, yeah. And at the end and of the, that tour? And at the end of the tour, I went, I, well, the main thing, uh, the, the, the challenge was to, to get into the Juilliard School. And that was one who was, was doing was it. That, was that a plan for you to go to Juilliard? Yes. When you were back in Israel before Sullivan? Had it always been in well, your sense? Before, before Sullivan, it was a dream to go to Juilliard, but Sullivan made it. But you were aware it, of Juilliard. Uh, yes, right. I was aware of Juilliard, and there was a, a teacher there who taught uh, Juilliard that I heard about in Israel by the name of Galamian. And so we said, one of these days, maybe you'll study with Galamian. him. Galamian. Galamian, yeah. Ivan Galamian, yeah. yes. His assistant at that time was Dorothy DeLay, and she came and uh, heard me play. And uh, she thought that I had a good chance. You had a good sound. I had a good sound, you know. That, that was my forte, is the sound. But then you were how old? 14? 13, no, no, 13, 13 and a half, 14, so yeah. So right around the same summer yeah, period. Yeah. So what was it like for you? you? You'd never lived in New York. I mean, again, this idea of being like shot out of a cannon to have this spectacular career, this big ticket career. You're, on, you're 13 years old, you're on Sullivan, you're touring the country, you're going to go to Juilliard. What was your recollection of that? Was it intimidating or you don't have time to think about that? I, I didn't really think about it because it wasn't really... Uh, look, it wasn't like a professional career. It was a specialized career, you know. In other words, to play, for, for, it was an Ed Sullivan concert. It wasn't like I was playing a recital someplace, you know, or I was making my debut in Carnegie Hall or anything like that. It was a specialized kind of concert, you know. And I used to play um, also, I used to play uh, for uh, Jewish benefits, you know, for the UJ. And they, they knew about me, you know, because the whole organization, the Jewish organization, knew about this Sullivan program. So they used some of the people for fundraising. And I was, you know, sometimes I was, uh, I would be called at the telephone. I would be hired to do 15 minutes or 10 minutes in the, at the end of the fundraising, you know. And uh, I would appear probably like 11 o'clock at night. You know, and I would play the Nigun by Bloch and the Flight of the Bumblebee, and that was it. And then I would leave, and and I would get I would get paid, you know, and it was it was great. You know, I, w I played while the people were eating their desserts and of kosher food and things like that. So. And was it the same people? Like one day, one night, you do Flight of the Bumblebee, and somebody says he was better at Jerry's bar mitzvah. So I, much I, better. I never did bar mitzvahs. You never, no, you didn't. I never did bar mitzvahs, and I didn't Just do UJ, I, yeah. and I didn't do weddings. No weddings? No weddings. Absolutely, you know. Now, when you leave and you come to, to the United States, when you left for the Sullivan trip, was it assumed you were going to go home, or did you kind of no, know? You no, knew you weren't going home. No, we, I knew that I was going to stay. You were going back. I was going to stay. Really? And, uh, to Julia, what happened? Yeah. Where did your dad go? My dad stayed for about a year in Israel and f finished uh, uh, selling the apartment and doing the business, and then he came and joined us. Yeah, I, I even remember, you know, I did not see my dad for a year. And the only way to get in touch was through letters. And then a bit later on, you know, maybe after about five, six, seven, eight months, we actually were able to arrange for a long distance call from New York to Tel Aviv, you know. And at that time, so you're talking about 1959, 58, 59. So it was like 10 o'clock in the morning, you know, and the phone rings. And I thought, hello. I said, hello. And that was the connection. You know, that was the connection. And, you know, we had. I'm going to cry. Absolutely. And we had in our street where I lived, we had no phone. So what we had was there was a grocery store that had a telephone. So whoever wants to make a long distance call would go to the grocery store mm. and we pick up. So that's, so that's what it but was. But you knew you were going to stay. Yes, yes. I learned the language from watching TV and, uh, you know, listening to, to Yankee baseball. You spoke very little English. Well, no, no, hardly. I took a class of English in Israel. I think I failed but it, it's amazing how quickly you learn, you know, when, when you hear the, the language around you all the time. And you, were in, you went to Julia, what, for how many years? Let's see, until I think 19 or, I was 19 or 20, I think. So four because years. Because I, because I still, I remember still uh, doing concerts and having to go to class. And, uh, you know, sometimes I was late to a class and I got hell to pay, you know, because I just took a flight from Los Angeles. Give me a break, you know. So, no, but you didn't go to English class. You know, you have to be that. So, but I was, you know, I, so I did both things for a while. And then I graduated. And where do you think your sound comes from? I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. 
it's it's something that I hear. You had polio when you're how old? I had polio when I was four and three quarters. So you know do that. you find that music become you imbue that with even more of your being and your spirit because you were limited in the things you could do as a child? I no. don't think so. I'm getting everything wrong with you, aren't yeah, I? Everything. But, everything it, but it's going, good. No, that's not it. No, but, but no. You're, but no. You're, you're batting a Actually, thousand. No. That's good. No. <laughs> But you're doing good, you know. I mean, Thank because you. I, you know, no, it's no. Seriously, I, I just, I don't think so. I mean, I mean, I couldn't say to you, well, let me see how I'm playing without the polio, and now let's see how I'm playing with the polio. I can't no, no, say. But, but, I can't say no, but that. I'm wonder, but I'm wondering if you, you know, that, that, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say that. Sorry, I'm giving you such a hard time, so I'm so sorry. No, no, I, I mean, I knew this was coming. I've been around you a few times. It's, it's always, it's always an obstacle course. But anyway, the, the. Um, uh, but but you no, know, what I'm saying is is that do you think the spirit of the person is that relevant? No, I don't know. I love to watch people who are famous, like whether they are actors or or uh, people in sports, and sort of try and guess what kind of people they are in private, you know. And uh, and being good and being a wonderful person and being a sort of a, an agreeable, simpatico kind of person is not necessarily together. You know, I remember my wife always, you know, sometimes we go to a concert and we hear somebody who was absolutely amazing and, and I say, Toby, come on, let's go backstage and say hello. And she said, I'd rather not, you know, I, I, I don't want to be disappointed. I love the way this person plays. I know And just let's not do it. Let me just relax and, and just enjoy it. Uh, you, many, many people who conduct, and I'd love to get your opinion of this, many people who conduct are people who have good careers as a, a soloist. They play typically the violin or the piano. But they don't necessarily have great careers. And then, but someone taps them on the shoulder and says, oh, you keep time very well, and they move them on. No, but I mean, I mean every, every one of them that I would talk to would say that to me. I'd say, uh, uh, you know, Dutrois, this one. They'd say, somebody walked up to me when I was like 10 years old and said, you keep time very well. Yeah. And they moved them into the conducting program, what have I you. thought they moved into the viola section. I mean, I <laughs> That's our ad for the show, right? Uh, no, 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 no. I must tell you that viola jokes are no longer uh, applicable because the level of viola playing has really risen, seriously. So that you said viola... What do you attribute that to? No, it's really viola, viola jokes. You know, it used to be that the, the level was a little bit below, but right now it's brilliant. I mean, so many brilliant viola players. Wow. So that it's not... But it's still funny, you know, so... <laughs> Violin legend Itzhak Perlman has a special place in his heart for the New York Philharmonic. He and then music director Alan Gilbert teamed up for the Phil's opening gala a few years ago. And here comes our guest soloist Itzhak Perlman, followed by music director of the New York Philharmonic, Alan Gilbert. Gilbert found out he got the job from the Phil's president, Zarin Mehta, after a particularly miserable bedtime for his toddlers. We had had a torturous night, and they had finally fallen asleep, and I got a call from Zarin Mehta just after they had fallen asleep. And he said, I'd like to invite you to be our next music director. And I said, my kids just fell asleep. I can't talk to you now. <laughs> but oh my then I called him back, and we had a I want to put that scene in a movie where a guy's like, more than being the music director of the Philharmonic, I want my kids to go to sleep. Yeah, Click. totally. We all, we all know the madness of that moment. Yeah. The rest of my conversation with conductor Alan Gilbert at heresthething.org. Coming up, Itzhak Perlman on Alan and Gilbert's art, What Makes a Great Conductor? Plus, his wife Toby Perlman on their music school, and the next generation of great masters takes on Mendelssohn and my questions. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, 
Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Itzhak Perlman didn't bring his famous Stradivarius. He says playing takes more effort now than it used to. As you get older, everything becomes more difficult and more demanding. Uh, and, really? Oh, are you kidding me? Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, if you do a great piece, you can do it over and over again. Right. And no matter how, I mean, for me, I mean, a perfect example is the Beethoven Violin Concerto, which is not getting any easier as you get older. Because, but, it's not, it, but it's very, very difficult when you're young as well. It's tough. It's, I, I call it, when, when my students start the, the piece, I say, welcome to the lifetime journey. Because right. that's what it is. You know, you start to play and it's pretty good. And then you play it again, and you play it again, and you just grow up with it. So that's, that's what music is about. And the minute you think musically like that, especially when you repeat something, you're on the right track. Instead of saying, oh, I have to do that again. No, but you, know, you have to look at the music, and you have to say, this is going to be yet another experience. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to be one way or, one, or another way, but it's not going to be a repetition of what I did a week ago or a month ago. When you want to sit down, assuming that you do this, I don't want to assume, but when you want to listen to someone else play the violin that you admire and you admire their sound, give us an example of somebody you listen to. Um, Who's a violinist you love? For pure tone, uh, the first person that comes to mind is Fritz Kreisler. You know, you, you listen to... Uh, old recordings of, of him. And you think, you know, those days, the, you know, there wasn't, uh, there wasn't uh, the great uh, advancement in technology and, and so on. It, it's that you, you hear scratches, you hear the tone, and you say, oh, my God, that is something unbelievable. Mm. You know, or, you know, Menuhin had a fantastic sound. I mean, everybody had a different kind of sound, but sometimes sounds... It's apples and oranges, you know, I mean, but that the first person that, that I hear of that kind of sound is, is his. You conduct? Yes. And, and w w when did that begin and why? It began, I tell you, it's very funny, it began with the Perlman Music Program. Uh, my wife, uh, who started this whole thing, she said to me, we're going to have a string orchestra, could you coach them? So I didn't think of myself as a conductor. I thought of myself as a coach, so I picked up a pencil and conducted with a pencil, you know, because if you conduct with a baton, you're a conductor. With a pencil, you're more of a teacher, you see that thing. And anyway, so that's actually when it started. And I got some interesting, again, I got some nice sounds from the orchestra. Conducting, I find very mysterious, you know, because you can have four or five conductors who are absolutely excellent, and each one gives you a downbeat, and the orchestra will sound different with each one. What do you attribute that to? I have no idea, thank God. What do you think makes a good conductor? Oh, well, obviously knowing the score and knowing all of this thing, but in the final analysis, there is a mystery as to what makes somebody conduct a phrase and the orchestra play a certain way. I don't understand that. You know, a great conductor should understand what he or she wants to hear from the orchestra. So if I do, let's say, a Beethoven or a Brahms symphony, what do you say to a great orchestra who have performed that 
hundreds of times. Right. How do you get the orchestra to hear pa 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 and say, hey, that's really good stuff? <laughs> as, as, as opposed to, I. Again, again, you know. So that's 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 the Four difference. Four notes for crying yeah. out Well, loud. it's your, it's my own rendition of what, what I want, what I want to hear. Now, tell everybody the idea. How did the school start? It was Toby's idea, my wife Toby's idea. It was her dream because we met in a school uh, in a summer program during Juilliard. At, during Juilliard, right. sure, of course. And so she started this whole thing, you know. And uh, it was actually 25 years ago. So this is our 25th anniversary for the Perlman Music Program. And uh, yes. And, uh, and it was, it was uh, basically for strings. And I think we had kids come to our house in Long Island and practice scales. And, uh, you know, like at 8 o'clock in the morning, you said, Toby thought that was the greatest alarm clock. And, but we're now in uh, Shelter Island. Right. <laughs> now, the people, whether it's the young program or the 18 and over program, yeah. are they, is it free of charge and you're raising money to pay for the whole people? We never, we never, we never refuse, we never refuse for lack of funds. We give a lot of people uh, scholarships, scholarships yeah. and some, uh, some more, some less and so on. And some, if they want to pay, they can pay. But it, it really doesn't matter because, you know, the, the expense of the program is so that even if we were to um, charge everybody equally will still be in the, in the red, severely, severely, yeah. believe me, severely. But it's great. And the program has not grown on purpose. Right. You know, we started with about 38, 39 kids, and we still have 38, 39 kids for the Littles program. And it's, and it, and it's amazing. It's, it's very difficult to describe unless you it go is. there yeah. and just well, give the experience. We have kids playing twice a week. Uh, uh, works in progress, we call it whips, you know, where they try new pieces in front of an audience and so on. It's, it's, it's great. And I've been, listen, I, during the summers, I don't play concerts. I just teach there. Yeah. And with, with other great, great faculty. And we have, uh, you know, the philosophy of a lack, once you're in that program, a lack of competition between the kids. You know, they all support each other. And for me, that's so important, you know, that, that you know, when somebody plays well, they are truly happy for them. And when somebody messes up, they go and they console them and, and they really feel for them. It's, 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 a, it's a real family. Yeah, it's so important. That. It's a great vibe. Itzhak Perlman's wife, Toby Perlman, please come and join us, Toby. And please welcome Rachel Lee Priday and Randall Goosby. Now, now uh, we're going to bring out six other people who've been playing the violin since they were 18 months old. <laughs> uh, let's get them out here. And then when we're done performing, we're going to end. We're going to end with this music. Here they come. Great. Thank you. 
That was Itzhak Perlman, his wife and Perlman music program founder Toby, and their brilliant violin students Rachel Lee Priday and Randall Goosby. The artists who made up the octet were Rachel and Randall, plus Stella Chen and Kenneth Renshaw also on violin, Chaley Smith and Joshua Kale on viola, Nico Olarte Hayes and Ichan Su on cello. The piece was the Presto from Mendelssohn's Octet Opus 20 in E flat major, recorded live at NYU's Skirball Center in Manhattan. And now my conversation with Renee Fleming from 2012. Renee Fleming has a powerful effect on people. Conductor Sir George Schulte described the opera singer's voice as 
double cream. Garrison Keeler said she made his nostrils twitch. New York chef Daniel Ballou created a signature dessert to honor her. But Renee Fleming is down to earth. When the people's diva, as she's been called, went to Paris to rehearse Handel's Alcina, one of her favorite roles, she spent most of the first week looking for playgrounds for her two young daughters. Renee grew up in Rochester, New York, where both her parents were high school music teachers. During the first two years of her life, while in her playpen, Renee would listen while her mother gave singing lessons. A few years later, Renee organized a barbershop trio with her younger sister and brother. One might say Renee Fleming was born into music. I often refer to myself as an indentured servant because we grew up with it. My parents were both. We all sang all the time. You'd take a family cross-country trip and be singing the road signs and in harmony. And I thought everybody did that. You know? <laughs> I just thought, oh, well, this is what families do. But your friends would get in the car with your family and it was like, well, I'm with these crazy Flemings. Exactly. Those Flemings, they're... Yeah, They exactly. sing to the trees yeah. and they sing to the exit signs. And, and we talked about singing. Did you feel like this is, was your way to communicate with your own parents? Well, interestingly, my dad was a big jazz fan. Uh, my mother didn't bring music home much at all. She wanted a break from it when she came home. Uh, other than when we performed, she prepared us. You know, I think her idea was that we would be the next one traps. <laughs> you know, my father, thank God, put the kibosh on that and said, no, I don't think so. Um, yeah, let me guess, your mother was the competitive one. She she was very type A. You know, she's Czech, and my, my grandmother and my aunts were all like this. I mean, you, they would come over, and they just, the work ethic was unbelievable. I think, I, I work hard. No, 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 no. They used to look at me and say, you know, Renee, you're, you, you really need to step it up. Yeah. You know? And I see myself doing the same thing with my two daughters, so I can't, I sort of can't help it. But the music thing, you know, it was just so natural for us. And my way of rebelling against it was to find my own music. So I became a composer. In middle school, I started writing songs. And then you played uh, piano? I played piano. I played guitar. And what kind of music did you write? Were you like uh, Johnny Mitchell music? Or were you yeah, it was that? sort of singer, what we call now singer-songwriter. But I also wrote art songs that I actually notated and wrote out that other people sang. In that time, women weren't particularly encouraged to be composers. In a different setting, that might have been the direction I would have gone in because I, I loved it. And it suited my temperament much better than performing. I was so shy. Performing was so far away from who I really was. Um, a specific opera, the first opera, if you can recall, because I, I, I remember the first movie I went to see in a movie theater. Ah. What was the first opera that you became aware of? You know, I would say, gosh, Angelica is what I remember because my mother performed it and we were in the f first row. And this is the Eastman Theater. So first of all, I was incredibly impressed by the theater, this massive chandelier, you know, all the velvet. I mean, I took a violin because of the velvet in the case. So <laughs> we were nothing if not superficial, I guess. You know, I didn't really know anything about the story, uh, but she was crying. And she was crying because she was singing about, you know, her, her dead baby and wanting to be joined with her baby again. And just looking at her three children in front of her. Somehow, I think that really impressed me. Did you ever imagine at that time, I mean, in middle school and you're seeing this piece, that that would be a path for you, that you'd end up where you are now? Gosh, no. Nobody really asked kids in those days, what do you want? Exactly. What would you like exactly. to do? You just exactly. went along. It's true. I know so many people in my generation who applied to three colleges and never gave it much thought and really, you know, the way we raise children now is worlds apart from oh. how we were raised. How do you feel, we say? How do you feel? Oh. My parents couldn't give a damn how I felt. No. Really. The only thing I thought that I wanted to be was the president. So yeah. there was, a, I, sure. I'd say, a kernel of ambition there. <laughs> in, the, in the world I was in, it was, you know, doctor, lawyer, or if you were of a more working class background, a job that just gave you security and a pension. Mm -hmm. The Long yeah. Island Railroad, the police department, the fire department. You know, you learn very quickly to choose from a menu, actor, 
was not on the menu. On the menu, that right. I was, that, that was submitted to me. Well, I went into music ed, like my parents. So that's another thing you did. You followed your parents because you couldn't think of anything else to do. Sure. And then when the singing became more interesting, and particularly jazz, um, when I really found myself in, through singing with it in a club every weekend for two and a half years. Then my parents got nervous. Oh, it's so hard. It's too competitive. What happens when you're you're writing songs, popular music or mm-hmm. whatever, you know, you said singer-songwriter, whether it's Carole King or what have you, and you're singing jazz in nightclubs in Rochester, clubs there? No, in Potsdam, where I went to undergraduate school. Is Potsdam a hotbed of jazz uh, N- No, it's a college hotbed. And the drinking age was 21. So clubs. we yes, so we all spent a lot of time in clubs. And this particular Alger's pub had very high quality jazz cool. all the time. And the guys that I worked with are are all working musicians. It was an extraordinary education for me in uh, many many ways. I mean, that's how I learned. That's how I was able to embrace performing. Because Illinois Jacquette heard me sing in Potsdam and said, why don't you come on the road? We'll come to New York and, and really Illinois do. Jacquette. Yes, yes. It's a great tenor saxophone player. Was really going to put me on the map as a jazz singer, and I just knew I didn't have the courage. You could have been a popular singer. You could have been, what, what, where do well, you take the term you're going to say, I'm going to opera is it now? What you happened? know, had I grown up in New York City, the singer-songwriter thing might have opened, doors might have opened. I mean, I sang on television in high school, winning some talent show, literally playing a song that I wrote. The, making the decision to go on into graduate school, that sort of solidified my Graduate path. school was where? At Eastman. So, so you went, went from Boston, you went back home. Yeah, I You're went back home for shy. two years. You still come out of your show. Yeah, then... I tried to pursue jazz then, and that didn't work, despite the fact that Eastman had a phenomenal jazz department. I just couldn't get in. I couldn't break in. So, you know, it was really circumstance that pushed me towards classical music, and eventually I really embraced it. And the other thing is I realized it was much more suited to my temperament. I liked being in the practice room. I liked studying. I enjoyed wrestling with this instrument a lot. It was harder. I don't know that it was harder, but it was more internal kind of cerebral work. You know, the interesting thing about uh, jazz or anything popular, you see, it was very personality-driven. And I just didn't have that. I think I do now. Interestingly, I've come out of my shell. I mean, when I tell people I was extremely shy, nobody believes me now. That's a thing that people have to overcome. Yes, exactly. You know, I found a lot of comedians to be extraordinarily serious and... And, and almost withdrawn sometimes. So, yeah, I think sometimes we overcome things by going after the very thing that really eludes us. So certainly in my case, that was it. I would observe friends who were comfortable at performing, and I would just try to act like them. So that was— It's interesting you said that. That worked. It's an impersonation. Someone yeah. said to me, well, how do you perform in the theater? Like, why is the theater so soothing to you? And I say, because I know that for two and a half hours, I know exactly where I'm going to be— exactly what I'm going to say, exactly what you're going to say, and exactly how a room full of people is going to react to what I say. Huh. And you don't feel performance pressure? Because I uh, had terrible stage fright. I do feel the pressure in rehearsal. I feel the oh. pressure to unearth, to get down to it and get the work done. And if I feel that we got the work done, hmm. then it's orgasmic. You know, like I go out there in front of the audience and I'm like, well, how's everybody doing? You know, I'm like, I'm really, I'm very happy. <laughs> Comfortable, I think, yeah. yeah. I think they're going to like it. Right, right, But if right. I go out there and I'm a little bit hesitant because I'm thinking, I don't think we got it. Hmm. But um, you do two years at Eastman and mm-hmm. you get a graduate degree there, then what happens? Then I went to Juilliard. Uh, I did postgrad. Listen, I could, I could be a doctor or a lawyer right. as long as I was right. in school. I was say, how does that so, work? Why Juilliard? Juilliard, at the time, the American Opera Center, it's now the Juilliard Opera Center, I believe, it was a postgraduate program. I was cast as Musetta in La Boheme. So I came here to sing a role. You get free lessons, coachings, all of the support that we couldn't otherwise afford. You know, you're a beginner. And I worked in Rockefeller Plaza for a law firm, pay my rent and everything. And it was a great year. 
It was a phenomenal year. Did you say to yourself, why didn't I do this sooner? Yeah. <laughs> yes, because I was so happy. I, mean, I was running around the city like a maniac. Uh, New York is fun. So active. And then I took a Fulbright grant and studied in Germany, and that was hard. How long were you there? A year. Where in Germany? In Frankfurt. How was that? It was important. It was probably one of the most crucial pieces in my education because it was so challenging, number one. Challenging how? I didn't speak a word of German when I went there. I was in the Hochschule for Musik and was not accepted into the opera department, which was very disappointing to me at the time. I cried the whole way there, literally, sobbing. Yes. And my boyfriend at the time, who became my husband, said, well, you know, don't not go because of me. And I remember thinking... God, that would be the furthest thing from my mind. I was so kind of self-possessed, but also clueless about the choices I was making. That's why I wrote a book for young singers, because if young singers are any one of them like I was, you just don't know what you're getting into. But I was also very lucky because that year turned out to be a very formative experience. I mean, learning to speak fluent German... How many languages do you speak fluently? Well, I studied French in high school, like many of us did. That was, you know, the language. Paris is my second home, and I sang there every year for a long time. So my French is, when I'm there, it picks up again, and it's good. But German is even more fluent and consistent. During that year, you learned to speak it fluently in that one year? Well, You're forced to. you know, I love the study of learning and of memory because what I've discovered is that at the end of that year, my German was okay, was good, you know. But every year, every time I go back, it gets better. And I don't have to speak a word of German in between. So the brain, those neurons keep firing. Then you come back to Juilliard. Yes, then I come back to Juilliard. I tried to stay in Germany. I tried to stay there and get work. No one would have me. So I came back. And my career started here then. How? Well, I had a rough couple of years of sort of no man's land, which is very common with singers between education and the start of career. It's very common for all of us, really, all musicians. You know, and there's this catch-22 where you can't get management unless they can go hear you perform, but you can't get a job if you don't have management. in the acting world. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. call me when you're in a show. Yes, yeah. And I'll come see you. That's the manager you're trying to get. So competitions were the thing that helped me. I won the next competition. Exactly. In the theater, yeah. For me, it was the Met competition. I mean, it took me three times, but I finally won. All of a sudden, the doors opened, but it took about a year and a half, I'd say. Things went slowly, and but the first, and steadily. The first, and the first paid, legit, professional job you had was doing what? The first real engagement was in 1988 in the Houston Grand Opera, and it was Marriage of Figaro, and that really put me on the map. Right. And that Describe was that. so important. I had never sung the opera in Italian. I'd sung it in English. So I went to rehearse with really seasoned professionals. I mean, people who were big opera stars already. And I was a beginner. You know, the first day of rehearsal, Thomas Allen in particular, Sir Thomas Allen, who's got such a, an intelligence and a, a sophistication about his portrayal of all of these Mozart hero- heroes. He's still performing, I think, at the Royal Opera. I was just jelly at the end of the first rehearsal because I thought, I can't even keep up with him. Mozart recitative is really hard. Imagine doing very quick dialogue in a foreign language that you don't speak, really. And I learned, you know, when you're young, you just, you just learn. You're doing it because you do what thinking. you have to do, yeah, <laughs> to keep up. I lifted the car off my baby because I had to lift the car exactly. off my baby to save my baby. Exactly. Yeah. And when you get these opportunities, you have to rise to the occasion and take a risk and get out there and really make it work, or you don't get the opportunity again. You know, it's so competitive, the field. I think all my horseback riding and doing horse shows as a kid really prepared me for that. And when when the curtain, I I don't mean to be so melodramatic, but the world you live in, the kind of lends itself to this, when the curtain comes down and the shows, the first show is over, how did you feel? Well, you know, it's unfortunately too long ago for me to remotely remember right. that. But, you know, I can tell you there was a euphoria in those early experiences, a sense of happiness and relief when I would go from one engagement to the other. You know, our world, we never stop. So there's no sort of you do a project and then you take a break. It's all a big blur. It's just after that, it's a blur. Yeah, and I say that to people. I say it's like, it's like it's all one big episode of a TV show to me now. 
Two things. One is more tangible than the other. Someone, Melanie Griffith years ago said to me that every role you play is the chance to bury that part of yourself that you don't like. And the other thing I find is that when God wants to make fun of me and to mock me, mm-hmm. I'll get a script, and what's going on with that character is exactly what's going on in my right, life. Right, right, yes. And I'll read the script, and it's almost God is saying to me, see? Right. See? See how stupid it looks when it's on paper? I have felt that a lot of times when I've been in any kind of conflict or struggle. Somehow the repertoire that I'm performing has just coincidentally mirrored it in a way that's been healing. Let's say healing. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing today with Renee Fleming. In your work, because in my work it's not this way, you can't do what you do unless you summon up some reservoir of the deepest, deepest passion to sing these roles effectively. But think of a role you've, you've performed where even you sat there and go, God, this is killing me. Well, It came out of you like you couldn't believe it came out of you. You know, there, well, there are two sides of it. One is the vocal. One, one is this feeling that you know I'm in the right place at the right time to be singing this. And in you know, What's the one voice. Well, the voice is such a an evolving instrument. So when I sang Thais, for instance, at the Met some years ago, and had these spectacular costumes from Christian Lacroix, you just thought the stars have aligned to make this role suit me perfectly right now. I love singing in French. I love Massenet, the way it lies, the character, the fact that, you know, the psychological drama in this opera where these two people completely change places with each other. That was a case certainly where I just thought, you know, and I was gonna do it again. And somebody stopped and said, do you want to sing it again in five years if it's not as good as it was this time? And I said, you're right. I'm, I'm not going to. You felt it was I'm good. not going to risk that. You enjoyed it. Oh, it was, it was perfect. I mean, it was, I couldn't do it better. So th- it's not very often I can say that. I couldn't do it better. Someone else maybe could do sure, it better. Different. It was the best I've that I could different. do. How have opera audiences changed during your career? Uh, if at all. 
I think the challenge we face in opera in general, and I would say forget opera, in classical music, is really exposure. It used to be that we had exposure, obviously, in schools. We had exposure through churches and uh, through our families. Every socially climbing family got a piano. Uh, and and felt that a musical education was part, an arts education was part of their children's, you know, the betterment of their lives. And that, you know, it is what it is. It is it is gone. It is just simply people don't feel it's relevant anymore. Uh, that breaks my heart when you say that, but it's true. When you do a show, when you're performing a piece, what's the day like for you? You go to the theater. Mm-hmm. And do you have a... Do, do people in your field, do you have like a warm-up you do? Is there a, well, I, I know I, nothing about that. I, vocal, I try to vocalize earlier in the day because I find that it, it, it's better for me a little bit just to kind of see where it's at. You, you know, some days, certain things, drinking certain things. I, mean, I have to be careful about, I love caffeine. You know, I would drink coffee all day and I have to be careful about that because it's dehydrating. So I'll have uh, my typical, so and I, you have to force fluids a little bit, which I hate too. So these are the boring things. Well, but not really because people I think are just interested in what kind of the, the, the discipline it's complex I mean, yeah most people can't control what they eat and drink yeah there's a little bit of that um having the humidifier on making sure it's a lot about you know moisture these are all mucous membranes the vocal folds are very sensitive and you want to go into that performance with them being super healthy and and not dried out we're the Olympians of singers, really. You'll have a three to five hour long performance. And yeah. that takes a lot of physical you know, it's stamina. for an hour. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of physical stamina. Plus, you're emotionally all over the place. Sure. You know, uh, as you said, I it's a very. Imagine. But it's mainly the amount of sound we have to produce to be heard over the orchestra and the chorus in a huge hall. That's the, the thing that, that is different. And if we sing well, if we sing technically well, we should be able to get up the next day and sound normal. You know, people go to sports events and scream at, you know, the other team or even their, the people they like and they're hoarse the next day. We can't do that. We're doing the same thing, but we're doing it in a trained way. And, you know, it is a hard art form to get right. There are all these elements and it's live. But when it's right, it's, it's amazing. Renee Fleming says she's looking forward to getting some rest, although it's not clear when that will come. In addition to her busy performance schedule, she recently became the creative consultant for the Lyric Opera in Chicago. They just announced an upcoming world premiere opera based on the bestseller Bel Canto, and she's been advocating for more arts education in schools. It's not just for people to be consumers of the arts, it's for them to also participate, find their creative voices, and build confidence through participation. My thanks to Itzhak Perlman and Renee Fleming. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing is brought to you by iHeart. Radio. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. 
Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.